Uh, welcome to In the Fig of It, Profit and Losses Weekly Podcast with myself, Colin Lambert, in Sydney, and Galen Stops um, is back in New York. Um, fairly interesting weekend on the news front, Galen. Um, you published a story on, I think it was Wednesday. Um, so Rohan Ramchandani, the former Citibank trader who was a member of the um, alleged so-called cartel, and who was um, exonerated last year with his co-defendants, is uh, brought a lawsuit against the bank. Any thoughts on that? Yes, so a number of thoughts. So, so firstly, um, Rohan actually um, penned, and we published this in, I think, around February of this year, a an opinion piece about why he felt the prosecution against him fell apart. And I would recommend uh, anybody listening to this to go back and read that just as, as a primer and as a perspective, again, obviously a perspective with a kind of a, a bias to it potentially, but, but it is a really interesting view because uh, obviously he couldn't talk during the case, right? Which I imagine is very frustrating to somebody, right? You have so much you yeah. want to say and, and lawyers are telling you you can't talk. And finally, after the case, he talked and appreciated that he put it in our publication. Um, so, so a, a number of thoughts here, right? So he's he's suing for uh, the, the term that's quoted as malicious prosecution, um, and, and I think it, it's interesting. I think, and, and I should stress at this point, I have an English literature degree, not a legal degree. So that's that's, that's my that's my big disclaimer at the beginning of this, right? Well, it's one more degree than I've got. <laughs> Um, but, but, but just just reading through, okay. So, so if you're if you're uh, arguing malicious prosecution, um, it, it needs to be that that City did certain things, um, not just knowing that he was innocent, but knowing that he was innocent and it did, and what their actions would cause harm is my understanding, right? Um, and and so so from my hand from my head, it's gonna it's gonna focus on two things, right? One, if you read the court document, there are accusations. And I'm, I'm not quite quoting, but I'm paraphrasing incredibly closely here. I have it written down in yeah. my notes that the city began a campaign to identify Ramchandani to both government investigators and the press as a uniquely culpable wrongdoer. So that's one key element, yeah. right? Which was the city was identifying him and, and basically pinning all the blame on him specifically out of the entire FX team, out of the entire organization as a uniquely culpable wrongdoer. Um, another interesting point is there's talk in the complaint as um, of uh, Mr. Ramchandani being, I'm quoting here, collateral damage, unquote, to City's strategy to deal with the kind of FX malpractice accusations against it. To, to yeah. my mind, those are two of the key things. If you can, if, if, they could, if he can prove those elements, then maybe you have a case for malicious prosecution. But that seems to me to be the very malicious part, right, which is identifying, like picking on him specifically to both the press and government investigators and then having a strategy whereby he was, according to the thing, the uh, the court filing, collateral damage. Mm. It's an interesting one. I mean, uh, just a quick scroll through my WhatsApp um, will tell you that any that there's a lot of opinion out there about it. My, my initial thoughts were that um, I think not for the first time, City were fairly sloppy in the um, process around dismissing somebody. Um, 
the question I would ask is how could he be the only one to be pointed out when and, and this could actually you know, be malicious I, I'm, I'm with you I have no concept of the legal technicalities but they fired what five traders over sharing information on chat rooms something like that yeah me, yeah I mean that to me kind of highlights well um, did they did they highlight all five to the authorities? Um, you know, collateral damage. Well, I think that I've, we've, we've used that phrase quite a lot on this podcast, haven't we? There are people out there that we believe you know have been collateral damage um, in this. You know, they were um, effectively. You know, it's, it's, I hate to use the phrase again, but it's that Nuremberg defence. I was only following orders. Um, but you know, the cartel got off their their prosecution because. Um, effectively, the jury said, "Well, everyone was doing it. So how can we how can we penalise these these three guys?" So that does tend to sort of suggest, "Well, you know, why? You know, how could he be the only one that was doing this?" Um, on the other hand, again, a quick flick through my WhatsApp will tell you that a lot of people thought that what he, Richard Usher, Chris Ashton, and a lot of other people in chat rooms were doing by sharing information may not have been found to be legally wrong, but it was ethically and morally wrong. So it becomes a bit of a challenge then, doesn't it? Because, you know, obviously part of this is going to be you know, about his employment um, going forward. And it's, it must be incredibly difficult for him. But, you, you know, you look at it and say, well, how do we stand on people making ethical or moral mistakes compared to making legal mistakes? It's a tough one. Um, I think the general sentiment from my end, you know, people I've been talking to is that this will probably end in a settlement sort of some of some shape or form that will satisfy both parties. I don't know what you're getting. So, so uh, well, the thing I'm getting is, I mean, I've only, and I, I should stress that, that I'm recording this before I've finished writing a, a follow-up piece that I'm working on. So my preliminary conversations, talking to people who know far more about legal matters than me, um, is that um, malicious prosecution is apparently a very hard thing to prove. Um, right. The, the burden of proof is very high. Um, there is also a question of the fact that uh, Mr. Ramchadani was, was, you know, the case was brought against him by the DOJ, the Department of Justice in the U.S., not City. Right. So to yeah. argue that City was malicious prosecution. Now that there is, I under, from my understanding, a counter argument to this, right, which is, you know, post two thousand eight. Um, someone got, you know, the, the, it was very obvious, right, that, that given certain actions that, that the DOJ was going to come down on him and individuals. Yeah. I think someone, someone mentioned, I haven't checked this, so I, I need to confirm it, but apparently the policy actually changed post 2008 at some stage to actually focus on individuals because people were frustrated that post 2008 no individuals got brought to justice. It was all corporate fines kind of thing. Um, but, but re regardless of, of that, my understanding is that the malicious prosecution is a difficult thing. It's a hard yeah. burden of proof because it's not just that, that someone was working with ambiguous, that the evidence is ambiguous or unclear mm. or they thought wrongly, mm. but they have to have actively known that what they were doing was wrong and would harm the individual. Yeah. It is, is well, what I'm hearing so far. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to leave that one to the lawyers, clearly. Um, the interesting side 
issue to this one, actually, is, I mean, it's something that I've kind of banged on about in my columns for quite a few years now, and that is that this sort of a lack of accountability or a lack of um, questioning of the actions of senior management um, above these traders that were all dismissed. You know, they were all at trading desk level. Um, I don't think any of them was like um, a global head of anything. So they all had bosses. And, you know, to go back to why they were exonerated in the first place, because everyone was doing it, it was the bosses letting them do this. And as um, some city prosecutions, sorry, um, some city unfair dismissal judgments have found, you know, that the bank management was actually giving these traders a, a target to actually get more market information by being in the chat rooms. Now, that could be the bosses themselves saying, well, there's nothing wrong with this. And until they were told there was something wrong, then you know, they, they, they allowed it to carry on. But you've got to question the judgment of people who think it's okay to be sharing information like this. And, and I wonder if this case, and I'm not the only one, there's been a few people messaging me about this, saying like, this could be the case if it does go to court, where senior managers are dragged into this, um, starting with City. But if it's a successful you know, um, action, then this will um, spill down into other institutions as well, where all of a sudden, um, senior managers will be called to defend their actions and their decision making, you know, what, what will be nearly 10 years ago in some cases. Um, I don't know what statute of limitations is and all of that. Perhaps they're hoping for a long delay in this. But I think that will be a, that will be an interesting side issue to what we're actually um, going to be looking at if this goes as far um, as a U.S. courtroom. Is it actually? Is it, it is in the U.S., isn't it? It, it, it is it's in the Southern yeah. District of, of yeah. New York. Um, yeah. And, and um, I'll detail this more in the article that will be published probably before this goes out. But, but there is indeed a lot of, as you get deeper into the, the public court documents, which again are public, so I'm not giving it away, that there is a lot of um, actually focus on uh, management and the conversations between management and Mr. Uh, Ramchandani about yeah. what was and wasn't acceptable yeah. and what was and wasn't legal. But it, it's a little confusing. There's a lot of ins and outs we probably can't get into now. But no. but the long and short of it is, right, I, I, I do certainly, you know, I know you've had WhatsApp saying that, that maybe it was, you know, legal but unethical. But I, I certainly personally have sympathy for someone who has been um, unequivocally found to be not guilty of any crime. Um, yeah. You know, obviously... The, the figure of, of, of I think, uh, 112 million, was it, that we reported? Yeah, yeah um, being taught, I, I think, personally, again, this is my personal, you know, English that should grieve you. Um, I think, personally, maybe a jury won't have too much sympathy with that figure. But I think it's hard not to have sympathy with the point that someone did something that was not in mm. any way, shape, or form legally wrong, has been found unequivocally, unequivocally, innocent of any legal wrongdoing and realistically now probably cannot get a job in the industry again. Yeah. Oh, and I think that comes down to my earlier point, you know, do we, where do we draw a line between legal wrongs and ethical wrongs? Because I think, you know, most people make mistakes. So, you know, there's not a perfect person out there. So do we sort of look at this and say, well, actually, we should be um, looking at these traders and saying, okay, you've made a mistake, you've learned your lesson. And, you know, they would have to understand if they got another job that they would be on the very, very tightest of leashes. 
Um, but we have, you know, do we have to give him a second chance? So look, you know, the fact is, you know, all my sources tell me he was a very, very good trader, so it'd be an asset to anyone. Um, but I just fear at the moment in this day and age with the way institutions are running scared of anything that's got a regular tree smell about it, um, it's just an easy excuse not to employ it, isn't it? And, and you know, that could be part of his, his case. I don't know. It's, uh, it's a tough one. It is a tough one. No, it, it definitely is a tough one. And like I said, like, I, I and says, say, I can't see him getting employed anywhere in financial services again. No. I don't so, I mean, yeah, it's an interesting question, actually, because if you look at it and think, well, um, as far as I can work out, he has not been. So Chris Ashton was another member of the cartel, and he was actually banned for life by the Federal Reserve. Um, and I'm, and I have to say, I was very, very unhappy about the timing of that at the time because they did it during his unfair dismissal trial. And I think, well, that's kind of, to me, that looks, that smacks of trying to interfere with the judicial process. But, you know, he was banned for life, so he cannot get a job at an institution. My understanding is Rohan wasn't. And there's no record uh, of him being banned. So, so therefore, you know, that shouldn't be in his way either. He, yeah, he wasn't, and and it's not in his way technically. But still, as you talked about, in in this day and age where financial institutions are so scared of their shadows, um, that there's no way that anyone would take the risk just associated of, of hiring someone like that. No. I don't think personally, and and maybe someone no. will prove me wrong. And actually, actually, yeah. I think I think we mentioned this on a previous podcast. We did actually reach out um, to the Fed about in light of the judgment, whether they would consider reversing that, considering he got found innocent, and we have yet to receive a uh, an adequate response from them on it. It was... Yeah, my, was my understanding no is... No comment and shuffling my, around. Yeah, my understanding is that Chris Ashton is actually appealing that, Ben, in in the wake of his exoneration. So, yeah, and, and I guess that's... You know, why wouldn't you? Um he did obviously sue Barclays from Fedor Smith, if I remember rightly, as well, but I don't think he won that case. Um, moving on, let's get away from the banks and let's, uh, let's get into something just else, just briefly around the um, regulatory scene. Um, and actually, I did want to just to lighten the load, just the mood a little bit. Um, I did kind of chuckle to myself following last week's po- or Monday's podcast last week, where um, we discussed why there's been a rush of CFTC. Judgments. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think I and must have got about eight CFTC oh, yeah. judgments on on Tuesday <laughs> per day. Per day, it's insane. Like, exactly. We joked about it, and I feel like suddenly I've had like a flood more since we joked about it. Yeah. <laughs> we joked about they have a deadline to meet the end of year, and all of a sudden they're clearly getting serious about it um, because I've and never seen so many emails really- in my inbox. Maybe some CFTC staff who didn't realise there was a deadline heard our podcast club. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Influ- we're influencing. We are social influence. Maybe we're to blame, though. One of the um, actions that they bought was against um, BGC GFI for brokers uh, fly or flying in prices. Um, now, this has been subject to regulatory action before. Um, individuals have been charged as well, and I think that those cases are still ongoing. Um, we're rapidly becoming a legal podcast, aren't we? We might need to learn about this stuff one day. Um, <laughs> but the um, the firms, BGC obviously now owns GFI, paid the fine, as you reported. Um, the thing that 
I found interesting. I mean, it's, it's a, I guess it's a grey line. It's a very fuzzy line. And we could probably do with some sort of clarity over where the line really exists because um, they were um, charged and convicted by or fined by the CFTC for flying in prices and then hitting prices on the screen. So what it basically means is a broker would make up a price and another broker would hit it. So it registers as a trade. But there were actually no counterparties to either side. Um, now, obviously, um, if there was a counterparty on one side and they get hit, they're going to be wondering, where's my trade? So it had to be broker dealing with broker just to try and drum up some interest in the market. Um, in exchange terms, that's wash trading, which is um, is illegal. And I, I totally get you know, why they want to stop people doing it, why they want to stop voice brokers doing this. Even though there was no monetary gain to the firm whatsoever, you could argue, because there was no no trade done. What does bother me, though, is that if you move that into you know, into the options space where this was happening, but also into the forward, you know, the FX swap space, because they are derivative products, there's a lot of market data behind them. Now, if you look at the FX swaps, you know, <clears throat> brokers will look at where the, or dealers will look at where the futures are trading, for instance, you know, where the cash markets are trading, the interest rates, and this can create an interest. And part of the broker's job there is to sort of go out and say, look, I think you know, it used to be called the morning run. This is what I think the price, the market prices are. And they would give those out. Now, they, literally, they were stressed. This is what I think. But they would be using futures, be using for um, interest rate swaps and so on. If we stop brokers doing that, then a big part of the price discovery process disappears from our market. And I'm not sure whether the electronic space is ready to take it up yet. Um, yeah, we've said before on this podcast, people like dealing at mid-rate in FX swaps markets. So, and a big part of that is a, is a broker saying to someone, you know, I think sixes are, you know, for instance, 101, 103. I'm, I, I think I might find someone to pay 101 and a half. Now, that's not actually a firm price, and they have to be careful with the language, obviously. But if we, if we suddenly say, actually, the broker suggesting where there might be a trade is wrong, then I think that hinders the price discovery process and liquidity process as well. Right. Am I am I am I sensing some uh, sympathy from you for these two firms, or potentially one firm? Yeah. Um, yes and no. As I say, it's I have no sympathy for the making up fake trades. Um, that's yeah, we all know that's wrong, and you know they knew it was wrong. They were probably trying to drum up some business, and and you know they, they figured no one was getting hurt because no one's paying brokerage, but. Um, so I don't have any sympathy for that, but yeah, as I say, my concern is that a big part of what these firms do and these desks do is start that price discovery process by saying something along the lines of, I think I might have someone who wants to, you know, if you look at the way LIBOR is going now, we're going to be fixing interest rates six months and a year out on the back of overnight interest rate swaps. Now, that means there's no curve. A big part of the price discovery is where the curve is. And the, to my mind, the brokers have always played an important role in developing that curve. And it could be just, through, just simply by saying, look, you know, it's 101, 103. I think I might get someone to pay 102. And all you need then is the other trader say, okay, well, if you do, I'll have an interest. And then the broker goes to work. Now, are, are they suggesting prices there? Well, they are. Are they saying they've got a firm interest? No, they're not. But I think it, we could do with some clarity around how that should work. Um, 
I mean, choking apart it may be another thing for the Global Effects Committee to look at for the Global Code, just in terms of oh. you know, what, what, should, I know, what should brokers <laughs> be, you know, what is the role of the broker? You know, where are the boundaries for those voice brokers? You know, they can suggest where they think markets are. They could suggest they may have a, tr they may have a bid or an offer there, or can they not? So, so, so that was the thing that so, worried so, me about that. Well, so we're always told that, that once you electronify everything, it helps avoid these kind of murky, dodgy practices. You know, everything's auditable, yeah. everything exists uh, as a as a yep. record. Does this kind of refute that a little bit in your mind? Totally. I mean, the fact is, I mean, FX swaps, they're not being electronified. Why? Because we cannot get through the negotiation process. We cannot get through the credit process. And we cannot get to the stage where people are trading at mid. Now, a dark book where people can enter interest with discretion for the right account, you know, i.e. credit you know, and risk-reducing trades that we discussed a couple of weeks ago, that would do it. But I don't see that existing at the moment. Now, if it does come to exist, if we can pull the credit piece into 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 place, and you know, and I would note, as they say, the um, comments of our panel in Chicago, where they said we think we're at a tipping point, as we discussed last week. Um, but if we, until we get the credit piece in place, until we get the ability to post interest in a dark environment with discretion to trade at mid, the electronic markets are not enabling this process. So. To my mind, it has to stay hybrid. And so, yes, I am. I'm totally saying this is a market at the moment. The electronic electronification is not making it, it will not make any better. It will make it worse because people will be trading on wider spreads, and that would include customers as well. So there, problem solved. Problem solved. <laughs> Moving on. Go back to the phone. Yeah, exactly. We are. We are problem. And I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think the screen-based process is a very important part of it. And I would stress again, I think one day we will solve these problems in the electronic space. It's just I'm not convinced it will be in the next year or two. And therefore, price discovery, the voice brokers remain an important part of the price discovery process. And I think we can't handcuff them too much. Um, and I probably shouldn't use the word handcuff when we're talking about regulatory issues, should I? Moving on. <laughs> um, you posted something this week that I found quite interesting called The Great Migration, a story called The Great Migration. And you spoke to a series of people in the um, crypto industry that had moved across from FX. Yeah, so so it's interesting. So, like, like this obviously merely scratches the surface. Like, so a friend of mine actually sent me, they compiled a, a huge list of, of people across the globe who held senior positions in the FX industry who are now in the crypto industry, uh, or crypto markets, asset markets, whatever you want to call it. And I knew yeah. the list was big, but I don't think I quite appreciated how big and how long the list was. Um, so, so this, this was just a, a few people, and we were trying to tease out where, where do we see kind of the crypto digital asset markets being similar to FX? Where do you see it being different? And where do you see the two converging? Um, and there are a few interesting points, right? Which, from my mind, firstly, for example, um, some of the debates we've been having in recent years in FX are already popping up in crypto. For example, yes. um, we're already seeing the uh, single-dealer versus multi-dealer debate, which is yep. obviously... You know, all these crypto exchanges pop. Originally, it was crypto exchanges popped up everywhere. You could, 
you trade, but it was a very retail thing. And then we saw these kind of these more on the institutional side, at least. We saw these, you know, the bigger market makers emerge, and we all know they are, you know, the prop trading firms, etc. Um, and now, and now we've seen in the last year a couple of these prop trading firms launch their own single dealer platforms. Obviously, Cumberland and B two C two are the most notable and public with these single dealer platforms. And so now, so now you get to this question as well, which is kind of okay. So do they is the incentive for them to keep distributing their pricing around all these different platforms, or do they, or do they really focus their pricing on their single dealer platforms? Does that make more sense? Is that where people go for the best liquidity now? Um, but also, you know, it's remarkable the similarities in terms of the market structure, in terms of again fragmentation being very OTC bilateral, uh, liquidity being all over the place. You know, will this change? I, I don't know, but like there, there are a remarkable amount of similarities, and there's a number of people, mm. not just like, and not necessarily, actually, not that many of the people in the in the article itself, but lots of people I've spoken to have made the the leap from one to the other. Say that that the crypto or digital asset markets today remind them of FX, you know, ten, twenty, thirty years ago, pick your decade kind of thing. Um, well, back in my time, kind of interesting. <laughs> Yes, back in your time, Colin. Oh, that's what I'm saying, Colin. You need to you need to get back out there. You know, start trading. Off the phones off. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah, they're not really trading by phone. It's more, uh, no, you know, dust your dust your Skype microphone off. <laughs> so, yeah, what Skype again? Yeah, I mean, I, from my point of view, I thought it was interesting because. Um, to me, that question around you know, like where people trade, is wholly dependent upon this institutionalisation question that we've been dragging through um, discussions for what a year and a half now. When will crypto institutionalise? Because um, the retail world doesn't want single dealer platforms, to my mind, um, and more importantly, the world's regulators don't want retail trading on single dealer platforms. You know, look at what they've done in FX and around the regulatory space. And I know one of your interviewees comments on the regulatory um, differences um, and similarities. But if you look at what the regulators around the world have done in the retail FX space, it's been you either back to back this stuff, or you don't have these customers. You know, they're not retail customers. Um, and I kind of think that would be the same in crypto. So as long as we're, as long as it remains a, a retail dominated market, are these single dealer platforms really going to take off? I mean, firstly, uh, well, so, so most people I'm speaking to I, in the article are focused on the institutional side. And yes, we can argue about the extent to which crypto is institutionalized or not, right? But there yeah. are enough firms... Well, can I just say I'm not? <laughs> but not, that be fair? No, but like... <laughs> I, I, yes and no, right? Well, because, okay, okay, so talk about institutionalized, right? So would you say that, like, I don't know, Jump is an institutional firm institutional size firm yes i would virtue um, but they virtue. are yeah but they they're market makers they're not they're not they're not taking they're not trading this like they're, they're not the customers in this and i think that's what i mean by institutionalized okay. it's so, when the so, customers so, 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 are institutional so, but yeah but like okay so everyone talks about institutional but like 
but everyone has different meanings. This is my point, right? So when mm. you say institutional, are you thinking like, do you, do you really just be explicit? Do you mean like BlackRock, Vanguard? Is that what you're talking about? You're talking about buy side asset managers. Is that what you're talking about? Are you talking about pension funds? Allocating that one. I'm, just, I'm talking about, about funds. I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm talking of funds of all size. I'm talking funds of all sizes. So the investment community generally. Hedge, um, hedge funds. And probably, yeah, yeah, I'd include hedge funds in there. Okay, so hedge funds of all sizes. Do you know how many hedge funds there are that are active in crypto? Tell me, okay. Galen. As you said, of, of all sizes. Hmm. No idea. Okay, okay. so. 700. I don't know the always put a price on it. Let's go with that. So 700 hedge funds. Does, uh, it, is it institutionalized at 700 hedge funds? 1,000? 500? 5,000? At what point? At what, how many number of hedge funds does it get institutionalized at? I, and this is what I mean when I, when I say, like, some, I just like the, the whole institutionalization thing kind of I think it is a, is an awkward one to talk about sometimes because yes we've been talking about it forever but I feel like mm. everyone has a different definition and everyone has a different yeah. def different standard of what means quote unquote institutionalized. I think I mean I think generally speaking then uh, to to try and clarify my thoughts a little bit more then I look at it as being a very basic market structure. Um, one of your interviewees mentions, you know, there's no sales desk, there's no real sort of, you know, risk management as such. You know, the big, the big play, as we heard at our Chicago conference last week, is still arbing between exchanges with different um, protocols and, and you know, different um, product sets. Um, we're not seeing big investment money come into it. You're seeing a few. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously the CTA index is going to be down this um, in September. I heard. Um, I wait. I, I wait gleefully for you to. Um, from, 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 you heard from a very good source. Yes. <laughs> Three very good sources actually on our platform. Yeah. Um, but I think, by any judgment, crypto remains a retail a retail dominated market. Um, there's not the depth of liquidity that will be that would, that would attract what I would call serious institutional money, and and I'm talking like in the tens of millions, not the billions that we have, you know, in in, in fiat markets. Um, yeah, you know, when people start allocating 100 million dollars to crypto, then maybe that's 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 the tipping point when it becomes institutionalized. Um, I still look at this and say your market structure will evolve when firms that are used to using a different market structure come into it. As long as it retains, remains retail, the market structure will struggle to change. One thing that, I mean, the thing that really struck me from your article, looking through it all, that my one takeaway from it was, something I've, <laughs> I have to say, something I've always said about this, I just think we are getting just another contract, another asset to trade. I don't see anything different in this. It's just another commodity, currency, whatever you want to call it, that we can trade. And I think the interesting question that I want to put to you is, and um, was put by one of your interviewees as well in this piece, is like, will we see the day when FXL, 360T, CurrentX, um, et cetera, you know, EBS, um, Refinitiv, when they support Bitcoin on their OTC platforms alongside the fiat currencies? Do you think we'll see that? Ah, uh, that's a tough question. Um, I ask I would, tough questions. Uh, I'm known for it, Jaden. 
no, 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 you repeat the tough questions, Colin. That wasn't your question. <laughs> Let's be clear on that. You you read it. You read it. You read it in one of them one of them article things. Yes, I I, I look at it every now and again. <laughs> yeah. Um. I. So, okay. So it, do I think that the cryptocurrencies will ultimately be offered alongside fiat? Yes. Yeah. Will okay. it be Bitcoin on on FX all or 360T specifically? Less confident. Okay. How about that? But then, if they do get, but if they do gain traction within the type of customers that are using these platforms now, then you would think it would be a sensible thing for those platforms to add it, wouldn't you? So again, it comes down to can we get these, you know, um, hedge funds, asset managers, um, and banks to a degree to allocate capital to these markets <clears throat> on a serious enough level that these platforms would want to add them. because, And this is where I think the whole thing comes down to. Um, generally speaking, if you look at the single-dealer platforms and the multi-dealer platforms, adding the currency pair is a very easy thing. You just build a bit of piping and put a, and, and, and build a new, ta and build, build a new um, tab on your screen. That's all it would really be. As long as you've got prices coming in, um, then you can display those prices in the same way you can any other asset. Um, the question will be more around the back end of it. And, and again, going back to your article, another great point made was, and you do look at it and you ask this question, you know, these cryptocurrencies are settling instantaneously. And there was a, a point made in Chicago repeatedly. You know, the quickest way to get money from the U.S. to Australia is to jump on a plane with a suitcase full of cash. I'm sure there's custom rules around there. We're not condoning that in any way, of course, but, but that's but, still the quickest way, and that's, that's got to change. By, by the way, this is how Colin Lambert gets paid every month. So <laughs> I send frequent someone... flyer points, mate. They're a currency in their own. <laughs> yeah, Julie, sends, Julie flies someone from London to Australia once a month with a bag of cash <laughs> to pay Colin. Yeah, not so. Can I just say, not, not a big enough bag of cash. I, I was like, if you like. I was like, so you see someone looking shifty with a very tiny bag. <laughs> it's my salary being delivered. That's a one pound coin for falling out as he goes to buy a drink. Mug that yep. guy for well, let's say. Yeah, and yeah, there's nothing to be said about that. Um, on that, on that very uh, strange note, we will um, close out this week. Um, thanks very much for listening. Uh, we hope you have a good week, and we'll be back next week. Um, and speak to you then. Thanks for listening.